You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station, uh, Breakfast with Politics. And uh, today we're going to have a look at the uh, Federal Anti-Corruption Commission Bill that's uh, making its way into Parliament. And uh, we're going to listen to bits from a uh, the Centre for National Integrity. Uh, it had a webinar which was, uh, and I've taken pieces from it because uh, they've been doing some fantastic work um, making it making people aware of the ins and outs of the anti-corruption uh, commission bill uh, but also uh, leading up to uh, pressing for a, uh, a better and uh, a more um, focused national integrity project effectively and um it includes uh, Catherine Williams, who's the research director who directs the conversation, and it's with three eminent lawyers, Stephen Charles, Geoffrey Watson and Anthony Wheely, who uh, have been in the vanguard of uh, uh, pushing for a uh, change to the uh, whole uh, framework of uh, looking at um, enforcing integrity into the public sphere. Anyway, we're going to, uh, it, it sort of goes through various things to do with the legislation because they've read it and they've applied their mind to it and uh, there's a discussion around various points to do with what uh, the actual legislation means. Anyway, I thought that was worth us doing that because, of course, we're probably not going to read the legislation and we're probably not going to be able to apply our minds in the same way as they do. So I think it's a really interesting conversation. We're going to follow that with... Uh, uh, we're going to mark the uh, Westgate Bridge uh, 52nd Memorial Day. This is the actual day, the date, anyway... It was uh, all. It all happened. The falling of the Westgate Bridge, the collapse, happened on the fifteenth of October, fifty-two years ago. And uh, there's going to be a memorial today, uh, gathering under the bridge on Douglas Parade in Spotswood. It starts at eleven fifteen a.m. for a smoking ceremony, and follows with Christy Kane, National Secretary, doing the speech. There will be refreshments later, but I'll give you those details after. Uh, a small uh, piece of archival footage that was put together for the moment for this program um, and uh, uh, it was produced by Scott Ferris, Peter Bell, Dora Barini 
and Ken Mansell uh, to mark the 20th and the 25th year memorials. Uh, 3CR has an archive of material around the Westgate uh, Bridge disaster, uh, and I'll give you those details too. And they'll be on our podcast so that you can follow up and listen to more first-hand uh, accounts of the uh, of the event, but also the significance for working people of what came out of that incredibly horrendous uh, 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 event. In fact, if you want to get a first-hand account, you might want to tune in to the uh, Con- uh, Concrete Gang tomorrow, 9.30, because uh, they spoke to one of the uh, people uh, to mark the event. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I have to say, it was uh, pretty chilling stuff. Anyway, uh, uh, anyway, a lot of OHS came out of that terrible disaster, so uh, there you go. We're going to follow that with, um, this is the week, well, was Kevin's going to uh, uh, run <laughs> the things that Kevin finds? And the as I said to him after he uh, did his piece, I said, oh, this... How could it be? How could it be? And he said, yes, it's terrible, but it actually is. <laughs> but anyway, he's got, he goes through the week and uh, uh, gathers it all together and uh, chucks it against the wall for our benefit. Fantastic stuff. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, the director and the lead, one of the leads uh, uh, and uh, key people involved in a, a New Zealand film that's on at the moment. Fantastic film. It's called Maru. Um of course, when you hear them speak it, uh, you'll hear that my accent's not quite up to the game. But never mind, Maru, uh, M-U-R-U. It's, uh, we're going to talk to the director, Tara Rempa uh, Kai and uh, Tami Ite, who, uh, and uh, it's specifically about um, a recreation, in a sense, or, or con- conflation of two events, majorly important events that happened to Maori people in uh, New Zealand. The first, uh, one, it was uh, uh, police raids on a community in 2007 and uh, conflated with uh, similar events in the similar place in two, uh, nine, 1916. And uh, it's got... Sp- You'll find when I talk to them, you'll 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 realise that there's a a deep and abiding connection between uh, police attacks on uh, indigenous communities uh, that uh, happen in New Zealand and uh, uh, what happens in Australia. A fascinating film. Anyway, I had a chance to talk to the director and one of the key players, not only in the real events in 2007, but who was part of making this film. So, uh, and after that, we're going to have a chat, hopefully, with Paul McVeigh, who has got an event going on, a mixed media exhibition at Health 101 Art, uh, which is happening uh, today and over over time. Uh, it, it runs till the 27th of October. Anyway, we'll find out from Paul more about that as uh, the morning proceeds. I'll be ever together. Cause Hi, my name is Bundalini, also known as Robbie Thorpe. I want to invite you 
to the 2022 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 10th of November at Arnie Elmer Forbes Gathering Place, Dadi Munwaro, 546 to 550 High Street, Preston. There will be a panel discussion on First Nations incarceration and justice, some live music with Amos Roach and free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday the 10th of November, Arnie Elmer Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Munwaro. 6 to 8 p.m. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. You're with Annie on 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, as I said we're going to uh, look a little bit more forensically into the Federal Anti-Corruption Commission because after the uh, events of the uh, last Federal LNP government we could all do with a bit of national integrity and um, especially since Australia does not have a Bill of Rights. Um, So... uh, the Centre for National Integrity has been running webinars and uh, you can get the full uh, gamut of their experience by going to their website. But I thought I would um, share some uh, highlights of the most recent event with uh, Catherine Williams, who's the Research Director at the Centre for National Integrity, uh, when she was having a chat with uh, Stephen Charles, Geoffrey Watson and Anthony Wheely. Um, you'll, she'll, she explains their significance and why it's interesting to have them look forensically at the uh, uh, Federal Anti-Corruption Commission Bill. Okay, here we go. Ha! Today we discuss a momentous occasion in Australian history and that is the introduction into the Federal Parliament of the National Anti-Corruption Commission Bill. Geoffrey Watson SC, who is with us today, described last Wednesday, the day of the Bill's introduction into the Parliament, as a grand and golden day for Australia. And perhaps he can shortly explain to us why that is. But the fact that experts have welcomed the bill certainly does not mean that they have given it their unconditional imprimatur. Unsurprisingly, for such a complex piece of legislation, there are aspects of it requiring refining as well as aspects of it requiring substantial amendment. To talk us through the bill today, we are joined by the Honourable Anthony Wheelie KC, the Honourable Stephen Charles AO KC and Geoffrey Watson SC, who I'm sure are well known to all of you. They are three integrity advocates who have played a significant role in getting us to this point where we are so close to finally seeing the establishment of the Integrity Commission that Australians want and deserve. So in order to get us started today, I thought I'd ask you, Geoffrey Watson, about what it is that made you describe the introduction of the bill into the federal parliament last week as a grand and golden day for Australia. Well, we've been waiting for it for so long. It's not widely understood, but when you think about it, you realise I'm right when I say the public sector corruption is the most serious crime on the planet. The international drug trade would wither and die without public sector corruption. We are signatories. Australia is a signatory to United Nations Convention to prevent uh, corruption. We do that not just 
as a legal matter, but as a moral matter, because corruption, public sector corruption, causes death. 20 to 40% of all aid sent to Africa is simply stolen. Now, what's that got to do with our bill? Well, we signed up to that treaty and said that we would create an agency like this. Arguably, we've been in breach of that arrangement since 2005. Finally, we've got it. Okay, we got it, and that was a political fight in its own right. I don't think that anybody could sensibly explain the coalition policy in respect of a National Integrity Commission. Mr Morrison said he'd introduce one, but, of course, he'd said that before. Mr Joyce, he, he sort of garbled out some words to the effect that he opposed it. So we would never have known. But here we are. We've got it. It's such a breakthrough. It's a critical component in the overall framework of the integrity in Australia. There are some aspects of it that do need to be addressed. And uh, one of those is what the bill proposes to provide in respect of public hearings. So, Stephen Charles, perhaps I could ask you to tell us about what the bill proposes to provide for public hearings and your view on whether this power is adequate or not. The original proposal um, of um, the government was to have public hearings when the commissioner arrived at a view that it was in the public interest to hold a hearing in public. And invariably, there would have been um, lengthy um, hearings by the Commission in private, long investigations beforehand to arrive at a view that a situation had been found to exist where it was in the public interest to have the remainder of the hearing in public. Shortly before the matter came into Parliament, as far as we can gather, a proposal came in, um, possibly from the Coalition, although that hasn't been admitted, a proposal came in that uh, the, um, they, they should uh, introduce into the section, which is section 73, the words exceptional circumstances, which were to be necessary or to be found to be necessary um, before the hearing could take place in public. That's been brought in from the Victorian legislation for the IBAC, section 117, and that is something which the Victorian Commissioner, Robert Redlick, has been fighting to have removed from the Victorian Act for some years. Now, the government um, has refused to remove it. The difficulty with a, a necessity to find exceptional circumstances is firstly the ambiguity. No one knows exactly what exceptional circumstances are, and it's been found to seriously limit the number of public hearings that can take place. Um, most Royal Commissions take place entirely in public. The uh, Hain Commission on Banking took place um, entirely in public. Um, most of the uh, Fitzgerald inquiry into corruption in Queensland took place in public. And there are very good reasons for this. It's so that the public knows what is going on, what has been discovered, the nature of the investigation. The public can see that the investigation is fair. The public, once it knows what is being investigated, will uh, that more evidence will come, be offered um, from members of the public. And above all, it will act as a deterrent to people who are contemplating acting improperly, that um, uh, they may end up in public trying to defend their conduct. Now, 
the, the main danger with public hearings, of course, is damage to reputations. And it's important to remember that these only happen at the end of a long process of investigation and before the commissioner can decide to hold a public hearing, he or she must look at and be reasonably satisfied on questions which are set out in Section 73, which would include whether there is danger of unfair damage to people's reputation, privacy and well-being, and whether uh, potential witnesses have a particular vulnerability. Now, the potential damage to reputations is certainly there, but the examples that have been usually given, um, people like Nick Greiner or uh, Farrell um, or Berejiklian, really are answered by what has happened in each case after a public hearing has taken place. Mr Greiner is the leader of the community, in both in business and in politics. Mr O'Farrell has been High Commissioner in India. Ms Berejiklian, whose matter has not yet been, been concluded, unfortunately, um, but was taken straight into a senior position in Optus. The dangers of damage to reputation are overstated. Some, some occurs and they must be guarded against. But generally speaking, the, the commissioners of um, integrity bodies usually stress that these are essential to the task they are trying to carry out. Okay, thank you, Stephen. So we know we, we know that public hearings have a vital role to play in the work of integrity commissions, and we've got this proposed limitation of exceptional circumstances in what I'm going to refer to as the NAC, the NAC bill. So what, like, what, what would an appropriate solution, is one solution to eliminate the word exceptional and replace it with the word appropriate. And Anthony, I might ask you what you think about that. Yeah, well, I do think that um, in exceptional circumstances is much too high a legal test. We don't quite know its content as a legal test, although there's been a Victorian case on the subject, which makes it <laughs> appear that quite difficult to apply. It's got to be something that's quite out of the ordinary. So look, it is a really harsh test. And the additional point I'd, I would just add very briefly to what Stephen has said is that I believe that there's a specious circularity involved here because on the one hand, you have a commissioner who has to consider or would normally consider very carefully whether reputation is going to be unfairly damaged. And having considered that and other things, then decides, look, we're going to have a public hearing. And then that commissioner, he or she, is met by a further test exceptional circumstances. And the Attorney General has said the reason why there's that additional test is to protect unfair reputation to damage. And that's why I say there's a specious circularity about the process. So what can we do? Well, I, I, I'm, look, there are a few suggestions. I think that those considerations that Stephen referred to, including unfair damage to reputation, damage to privacy, etc., they could be made mandatory considerations, you know, that, we, that the, the Commissioner must look at those matters. But we've also got already um, significant protections by the presumption in favour of private hearings. And I, I think that um, considerations of that kind, there may be others, uh, would be sufficient uh, protection. Uh, but of course, this is probably a political decision to put these words in there. And I can understand why that's so, uh, because I suppose the Attorney General and the Labor Party want this to be bipartisan. 
Uh, you can understand that. That's that, that's that's good politically, and sound really, but not at the expense uh, of being able to hold public hearings where they're really in the public interest to do so. And and Geoffrey Watson, look, I might ask you as a former council assisting the New South Wales ICAC, what can the consequences be for? an integrity commission's work if it is forced to, it has a person and wants to hold a public hearing in, involving that person and the person has the ability to challenge the commission's decision to hold the hearing in court on the basis of something like an exceptional circumstances requirement. What happens to the commission's investigation then? The proceedings would be disrupted and they would be delayed and that is usually the purpose. During uh, some of the inquiries that we had, there were repeated efforts made to try to uh, prevent David Ip, who was then the commissioner at ICAC, from continuing in an investigation which involved the Obeds. It happened time after time. Now, what you'll find in these corruption inquiries is often the people in, embroiled in them have got a lot of money and they don't mind going to court, even if they're going to lose, simply if it has the effect that it will disrupt or de delay the continuation of proceedings. So it's awful. Potential for litigation arising out of exceptional circumstances was more or less brushed aside by Mr Dreyfus, who I think, quite legally speaking, correctly said, it's very hard to challenge. You, you only to challenge a decision of that kind made by the NAG only requires somebody with enough money to put on the statement of claim and make the application to court. I don't care whether it's going to win or lose. So, I just want to disrupt and delay. So hard, so perhaps hard to win, but as you say, uh, not hard to challenge. So this is really is an area that we hope will be uh, an area that is amended as part of the uh, committee inquiry into the bill. Can be done pretty easily. Just somebody give the Attorney General a black pen and a ruler and he can put a line through it. I think it's going to be hard myself, Catherine. I think you know, politically this is going to be a hard one to shift. But we should all, I think, make our point of view clear on this and keep advocating for what was originally planned to be uh, a public interest test and nothing more. Well, could, could I just make the point, I'm sorry to labour it, but the Shadow Attorney-General, Mr Lisa, has now said that it's the coalition policy that the decision as to whether or not exceptional circumstances are present would be taken out of the hands of the Commissioner of the, the NAC and given to another person, he said an eminent judge. I don't know whether he meant a current judge or a retired judge, but it just introduces another person who has to be separately persuaded of the fact. The potential for disagreement and the compromise of the commissioner's autonomy, well, that's obvious. Okay, Anthony, really, I just want to pick up on the point you made about, about uh, areas where it might be hard to win amendment, and I want to talk about that in relation to jurisdiction because I know you've done a lot of thinking about the proposed jurisdiction of the NAC. I'm interested to know whether you think that it is adequately broad. Well, first thing to say is that uh, a broad uh, definition of corrupt conduct was promised uh, in the Labor Party's uh, modelling. And I think in general terms, we can say that there is a broad definition of, of uh, corrupt conduct. Uh, it looks to see whether there's been any interference, either directly or indirectly, with honest or impartial exercise of any public official's power uh, or the honest or impartial performance of any public official's functions or duties. 
Uh, and there are other areas of the width of it as well. But that gives you an idea that it's very wide. Unfortunately, it's not quite as wide as it might be, and it's not as wide as the definition of corrupt conduct in most of the other states and territories, um, and I exclude there Western Australia and uh, Tasmania. But in all the other states and territories, there is a wider definition, uh, and it just seems to me to be a shame that in the federal sphere, where we're looking for best practice, we've suddenly got a narrowing of the definition so that it doesn't cover um, corrupt conduct by third parties where there is no wrongdoing by a public official. In other words, we're talking about serious criminal conduct by third parties, which massively deceives those involved in public administration and reaps a financial reward for that dishonesty. That's not covered. And the Attorney General says, well, we're going to leave that to the police. And um, that's fine, but we know that the police do not have the powers of a Royal Commission or of an anti-corruption commission. And the trouble about corruption generally is that it's buried very deep. It's hard to unearth it. It's in dark corners. And you only get to unearth it by the use of special powers. That's why we have anti-corruption commissions. So to turn around and say, here's an area of possible serious criminal corruption that we're just going to leave to the police, I think is undesirable. And I think it's particularly undesirable because this type of activity seriously impairs um, the public, the public's or the community's trust in the integrity of public administration. If they see this sort of serious wrongdoing by third parties go undetected uh, or uninvestigated. It's a shame that we can't do it. You know, there are a couple of areas that are covered, for example, in the New South Wales legislation. So collusive tendering by third parties or fraud in application for licence permits or other authorities or dishonestly obtaining uh, or benefiting from the payment of public funds for private advantage. Uh, or defrauding the public revenue on a really serious or massive scale. Uh, now, th those things aren't, arguably, aren't, aren't covered by this legislation. Um, and um, I, I know that, and Geoffrey would say, that the definition does extend to contractors. But as I say, I think there's a wider area here that's not covered. And it is a shame. And I don't think that the, the, the government's going to budge on this. Uh, right from the start, they've just said, well, we'll leave it to the police. But I don't think leaving it to the police is for the reasons I've given. I don't think it's satisfactory. Okay. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we're listening to a discussion around the proposed Federal Anti-Corruption Commission Bill. Uh, and uh, it's from the Centre for National Integrity. And I've taken some uh, pieces from a, we a recent webinar that was put on as uh, a couple of uh, uh, 
you know, high-powered legal minds applied themselves to the actual legislation and went through it and gave their opinions about it. So we've got Catherine Williams, who's the Research Director of the uh, Centre for National Integrity, leading the discussion with Stephen Charles, Geoffrey Watson and Anthony Wheely. And uh, this is the last part of that discussion that I thought I'd share with you because, as I said, it's not likely that you or I are going to be... uh, going through this legislation and we certainly don't have the legal expertise of these three or four people. So, Geoffrey, look, I'm going to turn to, to you now and um, try to, to help us benefit from your experience as former counsel assisting ICAC in New South Wales because obviously you're going to have a real sense of how what is provided for legislatively actually plays out in the work of an integrity Commission, And so the provisions I'm interested in asking you about in this context is though the provisions relating to legal professional privilege. So does this bill propose to abrogate legal professional privilege? Is that abrogation appropriate? What are any problems you see with these provisions relating to legal professional privilege? Do you mind me saying I've got better experience than just I can because I've also been counsel assisting at a range of inquiries, some of which permit the abrogation of the legal professional privilege and others which don't. And so I can tell you that if they don't, it, it'll just, it, it stops the inquiry dead. Now, for example, inquiries conducted under the Local Government Act or of that kind. You, you do not know how important it is that you be able to look behind legal professional privilege for the purposes of getting to the truth. Best example I can think of is actually an inquiry in which I was involved, which in, was conducted by David Jackson into the affairs of James Hardy. And all of that otherwise would have been protected by legal professional privilege. Now, in this legislation, there are two parts to it, which I see as being a little inconsistent, maybe in conflict. The first is that the legislation is quite good. It gets rid of the legal professional privilege in general. And that would allow the Commission to look at matters. Quite often people go, by the way, when they're organising their corrupt affairs, they go to their lawyers, partly to get the privilege, but also partly to get legal advice. Now, it's a good thing that this legislation has abrogated that blanket protection But then it kind of reinstates it, unfortunately. It brings it back in so that it says that in terms of allocating private and public hearings, that any part of the evidence which would stand in breach of the legal professional privilege must be conducted in private. Now, in practice, that would have meant that during the OBED inquiries, when we got to that awesome moment in the inquiry, when the solicitor was in the box, who had file notes where the obeds were telling him, we've got to act swiftly because this is going to become public knowledge in only a couple of weeks, we would have had to have stopped the inquiry and gone into a private session. So that would have meant, A, a disruption to the hearing, B, a delay, C, the public would never have found out about it. You know what else? It's a problem because if you conduct that kind of a hearing, there'll be other people who are represented in the hearing who'll say, hold on, I need to know this because otherwise I'm prejudiced. 
So you're going to get all sorts of spin-off litigation as a result of that idea that you, you must, and that's the word that was used, must hold any occasion when legal professional privilege evidence is being exposed, you must conduct that in private. It's a mistake. I'm going to write my own letter to the Attorney General's Department to point out that they're making a mistake. That's how strongly I feel about it. So can I ask you, Geoffrey, previously we spoke about one really easy amendment just being striking through the exceptional circumstances requirement. Is there a, a very simple amendment that could be made to the bill to fix what you're worried about? Yes, you need to cross out the word must and replace it with the word may. Under the proposed legislation, is anybody going to be able to make a complaint? Can the Commission also act on its own initiative? Yes, it's very broad. That's one of the great things about it. You might recall under the uh, former government's model, um, there was really no, no ability for private whistleblowers to come forward and lodge complaints and the own initiative investigation concept was very, very limited indeed. So this is the very opposite of that. Uh, um, the, the Act, unfortunately, doesn't spell out the own, own power initiative. I think it might have been better if it had, but nevertheless, the expression that's involved here that you know, it can effectively receive complaints and information from anywhere would be sufficient, I think, for it to act on its own initiative. So all of that's great. That's, that's really a good part of it. There has uh, been in the last few days some concern in the media around the protections that the bill proposes to provide for journalists. And while it's, it's I think, clear from Section 31 that a journalist and their employer can't be compelled to provide information that would disclose or um, potentially compromise an informant's identity, it looks like an officer of the commission could seek to obtain a search warrant to uh, get access to precisely that information. So I want to ask you, Jeffrey, what you think about those provisions and if uh, warrants are able to be issued for such material by a magistrate or a justice of the peace, is that sufficient or in these cases should those warrants be required to be issued by a judge? Yeah, well, there's a few questions in there. The first one is the most difficult. What on earth is a journalist? When you talk about journalists these days, you've got a lot of people who never went to university and who are putting themselves out there as journalists on the basis that they've got a blog. So at one end, you've got people with a degree, and at the other end, you've got people who just call themselves a journalist. I'm not deprecating that latter group, by the way. They do a lot of good work. The point I'm trying to make is this, is that there's no easy definition. Now, uh, if we, we take it from there, Section 31 seems to me to be or to legislate in an ample protection. The journalist, the journalist's employer cannot be required to reveal their source. That, that is a fantastic thing for journalists. As for the production of documents under a warrant, I can't see where the harm is because, again, if documents are obtained, collected under a warrant, before they're able to be used, they've got to be subjected to a further test, which is obviously relevance, but also will take into account those sort of privacy concerns which are reflected in Section 31 of protecting the source, the journalist source. So I would have thought that there's little to worry about it kind of strikes me as strange that the people who are very worried about this aspect 
are journalists, the people who are very worried about reputational damage to the politicians themselves. There's all these sort of bleating groups who are really promoting self-interest at the end. Your final part of the question, Catherine, was about who should be allowed to issue such warrants. There is a good system in place and it's working at the moment for ASIC, ACCC, all sorts of bodies that they be given access, or sorry, the AFP itself, be given access to premises and be allowed to search and seize on the word of a warrant issued by a magistrate, people with a certain judicial office, not the top office. It's working so well so far, I wouldn't want to see this organisation being required to depart from that. So, Geoffrey, perhaps you could talk to us about that proposed parliamentary joint committee that will have this oversight function in relation to the NAC. The Parliamentary Oversight Committee comprises 12 people. And, you know, on the face of us, it sounds really, really good. Six upper house, six lower house, six from the government, four from the co- uh, from the opposition, whoever that may be at any time in the future, and two from the cross benches. Now, that sounds quite good because that's giving it a degree of balance that often these uh, standing committees don't have. But there's a problem. There's a very specific provision. I think it's Clause 173 of the bill says that the chair of the committee will be appointed by the government and the chair of the committee will be given a casting vote. So because it's split down the middle, that effectively hands control of the committee straight back to the government of the day. Uh, The control of that committee could be very, very, very important. My guess is it could be a better thing to say that it'll rotate or it'll be drawn from a hat. I just don't like the idea that... You set up something which looks balanced and then you effectively hand control back to yourself. So it's good. It's not good enough. Not good enough. And do does anyone have any views on the, the functions of that committee in relation to the requirement that it make recommendations uh, on budget and finances of the commission? Now, it's just required to make recommendations, of course, the minister can um, disregard those recommendations if he or she sees fit. So do you think that there needs to be some bolstering of those provisions relating to the committee's functions? Yes. Well, I think that um, we we all believe that a better funding mechanism would be an independent funding body, but we don't don't have that, uh, unfortunately, and it's not proposed. But um, as to this one... Uh, well, I think one improvement that could be made, you know, if the, if the minister's not going to agree with the recommendations that are made, uh, he should at, least, at the very least be required to give reasons for disagreeing with the recommendations that come out of the committee. Geoffrey, do you think that this proposed commission is going to have adequate power to make findings and report on those findings? Yeah, uh, it seems to me as though it's reasonably conventional in that respect. I must say I've had a little bit of trouble working my way through the maze, which leads to the issue of a final report. And I was worried at first that there seemed to be an impediment to the Commission being able to issue its own report in the sense that it could be handed to the Parliament and the Parliament would then make the decision as to whether to publish or not. But it seemed to be supplemented by a power ultimately resting with the Commission to issue the report in any event. If the bill passes without amendment, 
Do you think the Commission will ultimately be effective in its role? And I'm hoping that as we finish up, each of you could perhaps give us your views on this. 100% yes. If it goes through in its current form, this is still a great and golden occasion. It's a really fantastic thing. You know, you've got three people here who are interested in the issue who are saying how it can be improved. But what we're saying is also contestable. What the... I mean, this is a great tribute, by the way, to the Attorney-General's Department and also to Mr Dreyfus. They've got this thing through rapidly and it's a superb piece of drafting. Overall, yes. So, yes from Geoffrey Watson. Stephen Charles. Yes. Um, if the uh, legislation passes through in its present form, it's still a um, tremendous advance and very much in the interests of the community. I think it will um, still un uncover... Um, corruption, uh, it will still be enormously to the advantage um, of um, the Australian community. It will still, I hope, um, strongly uh, reverse the slide in Australia's position on transparencies, communities, um, perceptions index and bring us back up again. It could act a little bit better, but it will still be a tremendous advantage. Anthony, really, finally to you, do you share those views? I do. I, I think that it is um, a great piece of legislation and credit must go to the Attorney-General for his persistence in bringing this through and, and for people like Helen Haynes, who's, um, who, you know, who's, who's battled through the, um, the last parliament. Uh, she must feel very happy about it too. Uh, yes, look, I think it can still work for, for, for all the matters we criticise and in particular the public hearings concern, I think it would still work and can still be made to work. And I think it'll be a great force for improvement of integrity in Australian life. Trivia's back, baby. Dunbar Law's legendary trivia night returns Friday the 21st of October at Collingwood Town Hall. Expect an evening of sparkling wit, cunning competition, and of course, the glorious glory of sweet, sweet victory. Will it be yours? You'll have to come along to find out. Is this your first year? Welcome. You might just be the best among us, but you'll have to strut your stuff to prove it. Let's get together to raise much-needed funds for the incredible 3CR Community Radio. 3CR is 100% community-controlled and relies on annual fundraising to keep its amazing local content on air. Book individually or register a team of up to 10 people for Dunbar Law's Trivia Night. Tickets available online. Follow the links from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. You're with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast and we've just been listening to a piece from the Centre for National Integrity and it was all about the proposed Federal Anti-Corruption Commission Bill and it featured Catherine Williams Research Director Stephen Charles, Geoffrey Watson and Anthony Wheely, three fine legal minds. 
doing the hard yards for us to understand what may or may be the uh, pros and cons of the uh, Federal Anti-Corruption Commission Bill. And we're moving on to marking a very important day today. Today marks 52 years since the collapse of the Westgate Bridge, Australia's worst industrial accident. Uh, During the week, 3CR brought you archival coverage of commemorations over the years. Uh, We'll hear now uh, a snippet from Westgate Remembers produced by Scott Ferris and his friends Peter Bell, Dora Baranini and Ken Mansell. They did a work that uh, uh, around the 20th and the 25th year memorials. So here we go when it was very fresh in people's minds. On the east side of the river, the height difference had been eliminated by selective jacking and bolting, but now time was short and the engineers had a new plan. Eddie Halsell and boilermaker Anton Herbert. And then this young engineer on this side, he said it took too long. He said what we'll do on, on the Spotswood side, we'll roll these concrete blocks down on little tracks, it'll push the north span down and it'll be level with the south span. Yeah, well, so John Hollands were in charge, and they they said we've got to keep, you know, we've got the job now because the approaches are getting close, and and they said right, speed it up a bit, you know. And when I started, uh, they had sort of lifted large concrete blocks on on one span. And the reason for that was that one span was probably about uh, one foot six or two foot higher than the other span. And in order to meet them up, they they put great big concrete blocks on on the one span so they could meet up and they could bolt them together. And uh, as that sort of happened, the top of the boxes developed a, a buckle and sort of we could see this buckle developing and it sort of started to get bigger and we were wondering about about that buckle but I mean everybody realized that there was something wrong because the spans were quite different in 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 chamber and we understood that it wasn't right but we had to trust engineer obviously and they, they decided that they were going to do it that way and proceed with it. At the foot of one of the pylons that is closest to the High Street Douglas Parade Road is a monument remembering and acknowledging the terrible sacrifice of life in the name of progress and engineering excellence. Bridge worker Tom Watson explains the creation of the monument. Well that came from the after the bridge reopened in 1972 that came from the the trade union movement all the workers all the workers put in uh, I think about $100 to, to build the monument. Uh, there was no employer or lower caste authority or no company contributed to that. That was all done by workers in the trade union movement. And really that's a monument from workers to fellow workers who died. Did uh, Holland Constructions or Freeman Cox and Partners and World Services, did they ever offer an apology at all to the workers' families or were they sympathetic to, to the workers? I think they were too, too much uh, worried about um, insurance claims and uh, the Royal Commission and I think they were more, more, more worried about reputation, insurance companies and that to really worry about workers have been killed. The wording on the monument reads, Construction workers employed on the Westgate Bridge 
erected and dedicated this memorial to their 35 workers who were killed at 11.50am 15th of October 1970. Our comrades who lost their lives were Royvin Barbuto, boilermaker Ross Bigmore, carpenter Emilio Boscolo, carpenter Bernard Butters, boilermaker Cyril Carmichael, ironworker Peter Crossley, engineer Peter Dawson, rigger Abraham Eden, rigger Anthony Felzon, carpenter Esquiel Fernandez, ironworker Bernard Fitzsimmons, ironworker Victor Gerarda, ironworker John Grist, boilermaker William Harburn, boilermaker Jack Hindshaw, engineer Trevor Hunsdale, fitter John Little, rigger Charles Lund, rigger Peter Maguire, rigger Ian Miller, engineer Jeremiah Murray, rigger Dennis O'Brien, rigger Joseph Ozalis, first aid Frank Pia Marini, rigger George Pram, rigger Leslie Scarlett, rigger George Salides, boilermaker Edgar Upsty, ironmaker Robert West, boilermaker Robert Whelan, boilermaker Patrick Woods, rigger Barry Wright, boilermaker The memorial punctuates itself with the words in memory of workers of all lands who were killed in industrial accidents. Fine stuff. You're on 3CR or Solidarity Breakfast and we're remembering that this is the 52nd year since the Westgate Bridge collapsed, the worst industrial action accident in Australia. Uh, horrifying, absolutely horrifying, the uh, description of uh, deciding to get two parts of an enormous bridge to meet by uh, jerry-rigging some concrete. What well, horrifying, eh? Uh, and uh, the uh, needing to... Uh, respect the professional skills of the engineer. <laughs> it's just horrifying. Um, it, uh, it was also interesting or uh, that uh, the engineer who actually uh, said that it was all safe went down with the bridge as well. Uh, anyway, uh, it's uh, happened Thursday, October the 15th on 1970, uh, and we've just heard a snippet from a... Uh, some work that was put together by Scott Ferris, uh, Westgate Remembers. Uh, he and his fellow producers, um, uh, Peter Bell, Dora Barini and Ken Mansell did uh, some work uh, around the 20th and the 25th year memorials. And if you want to hear more of those, you can go to uh, 3cr.org.au forward slash historic broadcaster. Uh, I'll put that information on the podcast. Uh, you can also join the Westgate Bridge Memorial Committee today. That's Saturday, October the 15th. That's today. As they gather to remember Australia's worst construction industry accident. 
uh, its uh, 35 victims. There was a, a, a 36th person who died shortly after the actual disaster, 18 survivors, the families affected and all the brave workers who risked everything to recover the dead and injured. Uh, today's gathering under the bridge on Douglas Parade in Spotswood starts at 11.15am for a smoking ceremony and follows with Christy Kane, National Secretary of the CFMEU. At 11.50am there will be minutes, a minute silence to remember the fallen comrades. There will be refreshments provided after the ceremony at the Pirates Tavern in Williamstown from about 12.30pm. If you want more information, www.westgatebridge.org forward slash. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Trivia's back, baby. Dunby Law's legendary Trivia Night returns Friday the 21st of October at Collingwood Town Hall. Expect an evening of sparkling wit, cunning competition, and of course, the glorious glory of sweet, sweet victory. Will it be yours? You'll have to come along to find out. Is this your first year? Welcome. You might just be the best among us, but you'll have to strut your stuff to prove it. Let's get together to raise much-needed funds for the incredible 3CR Community Radio. 3CR is 100% community-controlled and relies on annual fundraising to keep its amazing local content on air. Book individually or register a team of up to 10 people for Done By Law's Trivia Night. Tickets available online. Follow the links from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the Deputy Caring Business Class Party Supremos Susan Lees and Dregs attacked the Teal Independents over tax cuts for the filthy rich. Not for opposing them, of course, but for not supporting them vigorously enough. Tax cuts which, which after all, she pointed out, are in their constituents' interests. Showing, she said, only the Caring Business Class Party can truly represent the filthy rich. This despite one of the teals, Kylie Ting, telling a City Investment Bank conference Wednesday she did support the cuts, indeed considered many of the filthy rich beneficiaries not rich, leaving us to ponder, one, her definition of rich, and two, what she would think of her constituents if she represented a working-class seat. Not that there's any danger of that, and Good news, former socialist big supremo Julia Gorlinghardt also attended the City Investment Bank conference discussing how investors can make an even bigger killing. She's back in Trubilawasi briefly to promote a new book. Imagine how poor socialist Julia must have felt surrounded by the class enemy, a socialist in King Capital's court. As an aside, on January 26, 1988, the bicentenary, as the reenactment of the first fleet came through the heads, just to rub it in a bit more for the Indigenous people, I was with at Lady Macquarie's Point, a place name also rubbing it in, the first two ships, sales, advertising hoardings really, Coke and Citibank. And I thought the second invasion represents the world's new empire. 
Anyway, we asked Susan, given her commitment to the filthy rich, representing the filthy rich, if she would also criticise MPs and the poorest of the poor electorates for failing in their duty, not supporting their constituents strongly enough. Uh, better pay and conditions, livable incomes, access to housing, to education, to public transport, health, open space, action on climate change and pollution, gender equality, that sort of thing, Susan. Why should we support electorates that don't support our progressive good-for-everyone policies? But, having said that, tax cuts for the rich are in the best interests of those people, as that extra wealth and jobs will trickle down to them as undeserving as they are. Oh yes, the famous yellow liquid. On climate change, if there is such a thing, more than a hundred Trublawazi and Pacific religious leaders and indigenous groups signed an open letter to Big Supremo Anthony Albinguzi calling for policies that are none of their keep-your-noses-out-of-politics business, like addressing climate change if there is, blocking new coal and gas ventures, ending corporate welfare to the great fossil behemoths, transition assistance for workers, help for Indigenous communities protecting their traditional lands, claiming the most vulnerable people and ecosystems are at risk. We hear the cries of anguish from those most vulnerable in the human family losing their lives, their livelihoods and homes through climate fuel disasters. The current level of warming is not safe. This moment in history calls for an urgent, courageous, visionary response, especially from those in power. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Urgent, courageous, visionary from politicians? One indigenous signatory, Anne Polina, blasphemed against the urgent, courageous visionaries with political support for the resource extraction industry is at times brutal as it exerts corporate dominance over the interests of the true Blue Aussie people. Showing how long-haired, commie, greenie, wouldn't work in an eye, lots have infiltrated at least a hundred or so of the dear baby Jesus and Yahweh and Allah and Buddha lots. But fear not. Normality returned with Anthony ruling out a moratorium on fossil projects. Any, morator- any such move would damage employment and economic activity. Far more important than the extreme climate, extreme weather activity, the most vulnerable and indeed almost everyone else are enjoying across the planet. Destined, it seems, to keep enjoying as long as the planet survives, or more correctly, life on the planet survives. Much less important than than employment and economic activity. So obviously Anthony knows that alternatives to fossils provide no employment or economic opportunities or activity. Fossils Minister Chris Bowender Capital, who continues to live up to his name, called for the Socialist Party to re-engage with faith communities. Yeah, well, his determination to continue approving fossil projects should do wonders for that. Still, even if we support extracting more coal and gas, we will address climate change by stopping cows burping and farting.
Well, good luck with that one too. Oh, and Lord Rupert of Wapping's well-informed readers would have had no idea of that open letter item, obviously an item in the news they don't need to know as determined by Lord Rupert and his editorial lackeys. But one lackey, the usual suspect columnist, may well inform them given he will be so distraught that religious leaders could be so fooled by the warmest who preach the climate change lies. He would understand Indigenous leaders being fooled because, well, because they are so foolish, foolish anti-white racists. His column on this issue should be a must-read. A similar great anti-white racist mind. Good news this week, I thought, when one of our favourites, former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle, disappeared into the back bench, we'd lost him, but good old Barnacle reappeared this week, similarly opposing anti-white racists, equating an indigenous voice to Nazi racist legislation, showing that Barnacle opposes Nazi racist legislation. Or we think it shows that, given it's almost impossible ever to understand what he's talking about. One of the great supporters of indigenous rights, mining and pastoral, filthiest of the filthy rich, twitty for resting profits off us, we know because he keeps telling us that anyway his family pastoral interests employed the indigenous people they displaced, providing them with beads and mirrors and tobacco and lots of goodies. Poor Twitty has to face the federal court next year, sitting on traditional land in the Pilbara, where the Yinjabandi Aboriginal Corporation reckons Twitty's mining interests caused, without bothering to seek an indigenous land use agreement, as much damage as Rio Tato, the planet, managed at Duke and Gorge. Indeed, the court has already ruled that way, and the hearing is to assess damages. Poor Twitty attempted to appeal the decision in the High Court, but was thwarted when the Western Troubler Aussie government supported the Aboriginal Corporation and opposed the High Court hearing the appeal. The Yinjabandi people say say Twitty destroyed hundreds of sacred and significant sites and sadly for Twitty the compensation could exceed 500 mil. Thankfully though a very small percentage of Twitty's wealth and anyway he knows what it's like having mining companies encroaching on your land. He, he took a rival company to the high court when it wanted to explore on his pastoral properties. A right Twitty assumed for himself but my god don't do it to me. He won the case. If a fundraiser for Twitty is required, I'll let you know closer to the hearing. Back to the great investment banks that do so much for all of us. The Luddite resistance to progress by evil unions was exemplified yet again when the finance sector union announced it would oppose a very sensible time-saving device by the muck quarry of Profits Bank. Avoid the time-consuming necessity to keep work time records for workers by scrapping little conditions like meal breaks, rostered days off, overtime, penalty rates, annual leave loadings and public holiday entitlements. Applying to the fair work, Troubler was he no longer work choices just looks like it con mission to have the banking award amended to allow such sensible exemptions. And what does the evil union do? It says it will fight the application. On what grounds? Macquarie, the profits provide certainty. Its workers know they must work 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the same pay. Macquarie can, they can make a killing for its shareholders, which will trickle down to those workers in the long run. Maybe the very, very long run, but there we have it. Win, win. 
although I'm not absolutely certain its application would pass the better off overall test. It could be lucky and get caring business class party totally neutral appointee Sophia Mirabella Cosa hearing the case and then it'd win hands down. Macquarie, the profits she would rule, will be much, much, much better off. And anyway, the bank has an impeccable reputation as a caring employer, unless we unfairly take into account the 15 mil it was forced to repay workers it had ripped off, or, sorry, inadvertently underpaid. Yes, yet another example of evil unions resisting progress. And two things happened at Sydney University this week. It rose four places on the Higher Education World University ranking. And then, what thanks did it get from the staff who achieved this? They went on strike. Strike? What ingrates? Claiming management had dragged out new enterprise agreement negotiation for 15 months. Key sticking points being the size of a pay increase... Yes, lazy, avaricious worker greed yet again. And protections against overwork and unpaid work, especially for casual staff. The union made outlandish claims like it was the staff's hard work that carried the uni through the pandemic and led to its jump in the rankings. And to compound the injustice, it is also collecting evidence it claims of wage theft, as if. Just because the uni was sprung last year with 15 mil, that seems to be the going figure this week, 15 mil in underpayments with the evil union declaring, and how's this for long-haired commie hyperbole, underpayment is baked into the business model of the university. What proof have they got? Well, other than the 15 mil. And anyway, even if the hyperbole is correct, it would be baked into the business model inadvertently. Meanwhile, also up north, the evil New South Wales Teachers Federation was fined $60,000 for taking industrial action breaching a court ban, although on one level it was pretty lucky. The Education Department argued it should be fined 540000 Interesting, the 60000 it was fined is three times the fine we mentioned last week for a young woman losing her right hand in a mincer. Remember her caring employer telling her to stop screaming she was frightening the customers? And double the fine a trucking company copped for killing a worker, showing, finally, how the law understands evil union industrial action is so much more heinous than injuring and killing workers. Good morning. Thank you very much, Kevin Healy, for This Is The Week That Was. And uh, you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. And we're going to go to an interview I did with uh, the writer-director uh, from New Zealand, Tero Ripa Kahi, who, uh, whose most recent film is Maru. And Maru is actually playing in the cinemas at the moment. Uh, I'll, I'll, it's actually about uh, the 2007 New Zealand police raids of the Naya Tayo community of Arayatoki. And uh, it's a collaboration. And I got to speak to the director, but also Tami Iti, who was one of the uh, targets of that particular series of raids across New Zealand. Uh, very interesting stuff. Amazing film. Um, uh, quite an extraordinary film, especially from the point of view of an, uh, an Australian, because we've, of course, had similar uh, 
well, not quite as extreme events, but definitely uh, police uh, uh, killing uh, First Nations people. It's a very big issue in Australia. Uh, but Muru is actually about a particular event, isn't it? A response to a particular event. Can you explain to my listeners about this? In 2007, 15th of October, the New Zealand government decided to... Um treat our Papa Tame here as a terrorist. So they, and, and even more than that, people in his community. So they had a whole raft of questions to ask Tame and his, and his community. Rather than choosing to knock on the door, have a cup of tea and have those questions answered, they chose to push the red button. And in pushing the red button, they were repeating something that the New Zealand government had done in 1916. And with all Indigenous communities, there is a living memory where events uh, from a previous century seem like yesterday. There is no loss of time. And so Muru is really uh, a look at, one, why didn't anyone uh, have a cup of tea? <laughs> and two, why we need to have more cups of tea. Yeah, <laughs> That's right, I suppose so. Uh, it, it, it's a, a response. You say that this is, film is a response. Uh, it's interesting because uh, the funding for the film is the first film to be funded by a particular um, stream of funding with uh, Film New Zealand. That's mm. interesting in itself, isn't it? Yeah. We have a very supportive government um, today with a lot more clarity. And this is the first Hiponamu uh, funded film, which is specific to... Maori culture and language, which is which is both of our languages, and um, you know our language and culture uh, is coming back from survival mode into thrival thrive mode because of Papa Tummy and his efforts. Uh, uh, Tummy, uh, how involved were you in the making of this film? Oh, uh, a big part of it, really. You know, in in different parts of it. And um, you know, and uh, yeah, it's a big, it's a big thing for really to um, you know, to tell that story. But I trusted Arepa, you know, and uh, I, I trusted the people that um, Arepa and you know, they they they're my father, and that um, I'm I'm close to them. I'm close to his father, to his father-in-law. We know each other, so it's it's a collaboration mm. of thought of working working with the. Uh, with, with the director and um, yeah, our first cup of tea in in regards to Muru was in 2018, in the caravan, on his garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the office. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, it's just uh, prior to like around around during the, the lockdown. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a response to the events that happened, but it's a dramatization as well. So it takes it to its most extreme. Uh, potential outcomes doesn't it well actually the most extreme outcomes happened in 1916 this is um and this is the unfortunate aspect of it and depending on your knowledge uh and understanding of the story you know for a lot of tummies papa tummies um uh, relations they they look at this film and they go this is an accurate depiction of 1916 well done boy (laughs) yeah Ah. Where there so, was, so it's a fusion, it, a, a fusion of oh, history. Yeah. Yes, ah. yes. 
Uh, whereas people today go, oh, that didn't happen in 2007. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, you know, everyone's on their own journey. I think we've woven something together that will stand the test of time. And so when other people um, eventuate or graduate into their journey, they'll see and understand more things with a lot more clarity. In terms of the weaving and the fusion of, of it, well, this is why it's a response. It's a response to two New Zealand government raids against Tuhoi. Uh, and another one as well. And it's, but more importantly, it's, it's a prevention from this course of action ever taking place again, uh, again by our New Zealand government to do work. It was an extremely uh, powerful uh, talk about the cultural difference. The whole idea of, uh, I mean, I was watching it. I actually had to stop it and I became quite emotional. Uh, I was like, how could it get so bad? How could this happen? It was so terrible. (laughs) 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 Oh, you cheat. (laughs) You you see here in Australia, um, in Yindamu, uh, a police officer g- g- stormed into a house and killed a young man and uh, he was uh, charged with murder, which was the first time a police officer ever been charged with murder, but he got off. Yeah. Um, no, even though... So, yeah, I didn't... Yeah, sorry to say it that way, but yeah. uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's something that's happening back home too is that... Because people know the story and they know the story of Stephen Wallace, they do need a respite during the film. Because uh, I know it does go white knuckle quite um, in quite a dramatic fashion. Uh, and it I mean, it doesn't. Off. It's not a spoiler. No, no, no. no and no. it starts off as this, you know, heart to heart communal family drama. But then, as as what happened in two thousand and seven and nineteen sixteen, the the ground underneath everyone just starts to fade, uh, crumble away. And bringing the story and the characters to life where we can experience the crumbling of ground underneath their feet is, um, was actually a lot of fun. But it was about reaching clarity. And You've I'm... got a funny sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. That's the way you deal with trauma, you know? Yeah. Uh, fantastic portrayals. And a beautiful film. You, you're you a very clever filmmaker, I reckon. I had a lot of support and a lot of great mentoring and some very remarkable teachers. Mm. That I well, so it's a very watchable film, I'll have to say. Um, how did you get to all the actors together and how long did it take to do the shoot? Uh, if I was to tell you the day count of production, you'd fall off your seat. <laughs> So with all that, but how did we come together? The cast were all committed to to Papa Tame. You know, Cliff, Tame, and I, we had our first cup of tea in 2018. And then one by one, as people started to hear that this is what we were going to tell and this is who we were telling it with, more and more people wanted to become a part of it. And um, Manu Bennett was in Iceland at the time, committed to another project. Manu Bennett played Kimiora but he's had a 20-year-plus relationship with Tame. He jumped on a plane during COVID. I didn't believe that he could get a quarantine ticket, so I was looking to cast in another direction. He got a quarantine ticket, and then he two weeks in quarantine, he got out on the first day of principal photography. 
<laughs> he made it into the school bus uh, and our unattainable schedule. <laughs> ah, so how long was it? 29 days. Hey, yeah. Um, the children are very good uh, in this. Uh, uh, you, I mean, what you do in this film is really fascinating because you actually talk about all the community, all mm. the different people in the community, including the children. You know, Papa Tommy spends so much time with his grandchildren and children inside the, the valley, and everyone's, val uh, everyone's voice inside the valley contributes to the voice of the valley. And so we've made this decision to just be as authentic and representative of the valley as we could. And that means that everyone is represented and four generations are brought to life on screen. And um, this hasn't happened in New Zealand cinema for a long time, and especially to the level of, of craft and everyday language that, that Papatame and his people have um, keep alive. So, mm. you know, this is the voice and the language of the valley. We were lucky to be there. The, uh, beautiful. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and the film is Muru. Uh, you can't say it. it's a really fantastic film. And uh, as uh, the director says, uh, it's in Maori. I mean, it's uh, got uh, English in it, but it's, uh, there's, uh, it's fantastic to hear and it's fantastic to see. Uh, and as he said too, that it is a uh, telling of uh, a story that is very important to the people. It's an ongoing story that uh, needs uh, to uh, bring cultural change to uh, uh, lands like Australia that have been um, uh, colonised. Uh, before we finish up the program today, uh, I've got uh, Paul McVeigh on the line. G'day, Paul. How are you? Yeah, good morning, Annie. Yeah. Hello to you. Yeah. Oh, this oh good. Uh, now, the reason why I've got you on the line is because uh, you run a art venue called Health 101 and um, you've got an exhibition that's starting off this week. Can you tell us yeah, a little bit, yeah. a bit about it? It's, uh, it's actually called Health 104. Oh, right. Well, there you go. 104. Uh, 104 is locate, health is located at 104 Canterbury Road, Middle Park. It's a three-level building. It's, uh, it's a lot of square space, uh, floor space, wall space, several rooms, function rooms, and one of those function rooms, uh, the, we showcase uh, artists from uh, Melbourne and all around Australia, in fact. Uh, and that's been going now for, oh, since July. Yeah. And we've kicked off with three shows. This is the fourth show. Your big project. Uh, yes, huge. A lot of planning and a lot of uh, work gone into uh, the refurbishment of the beautiful building uh, and organisational skills are tremendous down there, like coordinating various classes like uh, Pilates, yoga, land-based aerobics, uh, counselling, you know. It's, it's a space opening up to artists, not just artists, but people who, are, who want to get on with their health in life, who want to uh, contribute 
in the areas of writing, music, visual languages, you know, education, yeah. things like that. Let's get to the uh, exhibition, um, A Miller's yes. Tales. Um, it, it's yeah. a, a collaboration between, uh, you're, you're the curator, but you're also an artist and you've brought 12 artists together, right? That's correct. Yeah, you, you tend to meet a few artists over the over your history. Uh, I suppose, you know, kicking off in 1984, back in the days, the Mill Campus, where everyone kind of went through the mill in those days. <laughs> That's why it's, it's... And a number of those people from that uh, point in time, uh, you know, associates and peers, have, have become part of my collection, you know, through either buying new work or trading with them. And, uh, well, tonight we present a number of those artists uh, still with us and uh, a number who aren't, uh, one of which Rowan Robinson I'll mention. In fact, he's uh, launched at Byron Bay recently, and he's doing quite well up in the state. And we've got we've got an example of his work. Marion M. Campbell uh, is a writer of uh, renown uh, with a, with a back, education background. Background there with uh, lecturing people and yep, yeah, uh, Marcus Ferguson, obviously. Uh, the names are on the, the card and the flyer. We've got Kevin Mullen, uh, Leonie Kirvin, who's very, very big in the uh, life drawing, modelling area. So what? What? Are, what were? What was Rather the brief? Jedevic. What was the brief? Paul, what was the brief? What were you aiming to do with this exhibition? What was everybody trying to do? Well, we kind of, you know, we want to span two centuries here. And there's a traditional base uh, aspect of this work, which means it's, it's about the, the way we look at iconography, iconology, images, the way we present images in our own idiosyncratic way using, you know, the idiom of, uh, of language, you know, and how do we form that language? Where does it come from? Well, we look around the world. We all see and experience the world in different ways. And the interpretation and the description of the world occurs with various media, mediums. You know, you can buy the ready-made acrylics and oils. We can go out to your backyard, have a look around, and you'll find ochres, you'll find oxalis, you'll find bees creating beeswax. You put all these sorts of things together and you start thinking, well, I don't have to go to a shop and necessarily <laughs> find the, the mediums I'm looking for. Yeah, so uh, people will be in in for a treat when they go to 104 Canterbury Road, Middle Park, when they go to this exhibition, quite clearly. Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of sharing a few trade secrets with you here. Good on you, Paul. The Porter's Paint series is is excellent paint. I don't mean to be plugging it. Really don't mean it, but uh, it it they're just such fabulous paints to work with, you know, with 
they're water-based, um, and you, you have to apply, apply a catalyst, you know, and with the water to the paint before the paint starts to have a, a life of its own and starts sort of changing before your eyes, you know. It's, it's right. like magic. It's alchemy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what art is, isn't it? So um, the... Uh Exhibition opens today, and it's running to the 27th of October. Uh, it, it's going to be open today at 11 to 5 p.m. And no, no. no? Uh, it's a building, the building opens at 11 to 4 for the flower show. Yeah. We kick off the, uh, the opening night tonight mm-hmm. from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Cool. Uh, well, lucky I lucky I got you on, or because my information's completely wrong. Oh, okay, yeah, was something on the flyer there about the eleventh or four. There, the times open to the public every other weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds to me like it's a fantastic uh, art venue and community space. So it's interesting to go down there and have a look at it anyway. But the exhibition is on at five p.m. Goes to eight. That's the opening, and it's at 104 yep, yep. Canterbury Road, Middle Park, Middle opposite Park. the tra- train station, so people don't have an excuse. That's correct. You just uh, walk straight across the road, you're there. Uh, the, uh, can, I, can I mention my website? Yeah, go for it. Love All you, too. Right. Uh, I'm on Art McVeigh. Uh, it's a web thing. You, probably, you won't find much, but there's a few pictures of some things. Uh, We've got a couple of new fellas in, Amos Duggan, who I, I actually uh, bought one of his works. I love his work, so I put him in the show. I haven't been able to reach out to Amos. haven't found him. Computer system's down. You know what tech's like these days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so big hello to Amos. If you're out there, come on in. Your work's up on the walls. Um, also, you know, another website you might see some images would be uh, Blue Thumb. Um, but it, you know, there's thousands of artists out there and sites and things. So it's it's really really difficult to kind of for emerging people to to get up and get out there. But that's what we hope to promote. You know, through community arts networks, facilities, we're reaching out to not just private collectors or uh, patrons with the corporate business sort of attitude. We're we're looking for the people who are we're going to donate to the community, give back to the community, and you know, under the current legislation, you know, people like make donations to non-for-profit organisations can claim back. Okay, Paul. Thanks yeah. for spending some time with us. Hey, thank you, Annie. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to uh, your audience members and yourself. You've been really wonderful today. Thank you so much. And that was Paul McVeigh. That was Paul McVeigh, and uh, he is uh, running an exhibition at 104 Canterbury Road, Middle Park. Sounds like a really interesting place. Health 104 Art, opposite the train station, and uh, 12 artists, a Miller's Tale, and it opens tonight, 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. But it's going on till the 27th of October. And uh, that's the end of. Uh, 
Solidarity Breakfast this week. We uh, had a, a pretty uh, deep dive into the anti-corruption, uh, federal anti-corruption commission uh, bill that's entering parliament. We looked at uh, the, uh, or commemorated or marked the Westgate Bridge uh um, this is the 52nd year of the Westgate Bridge collapse on Thursday, October the 15th, 1970. Uh, there is a memorial today at Douglas Parade in Spotswood under the bridge, 11.15am for a smoking ceremony followed with Christy Kane, National Secretary of the CFMMEU. Uh, there's also refreshments later uh, at the Pirates Tavern, Williamstown, from 12.30pm. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with that uh, Westgate Bridge song, which uh, always sends shivers up the spine. Sounded like machine gun fire You should have heard her when she came down No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.